Welcome back to Lend Me Your Ears, a podcast about Shakespeare and politics. I'm Isaac Butler. This month, we're talking about what happens when your country is run by an aging narcissist who demands constant flattery from everyone who serves him. What happens when the guy in charge is not entirely stable? What happens when men are threatened by female power? And can an entire country just abruptly fall apart? In this episode, we're going to be looking for answers to these questions and more in one of Shakespeare's greatest plays, King Lear. Act 1. The King Falls from Bias of Nature King Lear is a massive play, one that seems almost cosmic in scope. But lurking inside of it are concrete questions about the nature of power and of rulership. Questions like... What do you do when your ruler is mad? Can flattery destroy a king? If you're defined by your power and you give that power up, what are you? And Shakespeare began writing Lear at a time when current events are forcing people to think about those questions because England has a new ruler. When Shakespeare wrote Richard II and Julius Caesar, the nation was terrified about a looming succession crisis. But when he turns to Lear, that crisis is over. King James I has been sitting on the throne for a couple of years, and he has a wife and living children to succeed him. Here's Helen Shaw, critic for Time Out New York and Four Columns. Lear is written in 1605, probably, and this is immediately after the transfer of power between Elizabeth and James, which was a pretty freaky-deaky moment. It was a transfer of power from a very old, very old monarch who had refused certain of the hereditary, uh, shall we say, responsibilities of being a monarch. She had refused to marry, and she had not had children, and she did not adopt James as her heir until kind of the 11 o'clock bell. And this is a country that had been riven by civil war before, Uh, It was going to be riven by civil war in the future. And so the idea that there would be this transfer of power and that actually everything could just fall completely into shambles was kind of on the table for people sitting and watching King Lear at the time. King James is the same King James who gave us the King James Bible. And he also chose Shakespeare's company to be his official theater troupe, elevating them from the Lord Chamberlain's men to the King's men. This is a dramatic change in prestige and fortune for Shakespeare and his colleagues. King James is also a very different monarch from Elizabeth in many ways. He had different policies, of course, but he also has a different style as a ruler. I spoke to David Caston about this. He's a professor of English at Yale University and the general editor of the Arden Shakespeare. He is a kind of intellectual, which is interesting. He was a political theorist. He he read theology. He was at one point adopted as a, a motto, blessed are the peacemakers. And he, he had a kind of ecumenical, broad Christian vision of the world that was based on trying to keep peace both internally and externally. But he wasn't loved. I mean, he didn't play for that love in a way that Elizabeth did and and knew that was the only game in town for her. James has another problem. He's actually the king of a different country. He's not only James I of England, he's James VI of Scotland. These two countries, they don't really get along. The last Anglo-Scottish war had wrapped up only 50 years earlier, and the Scots had allied themselves with France, England's great enemy. 
James decides the best way to fix all of this is to finally unify the two nations. They're already unified legally under his crown, so why not make them officially one country? I think there were some people in the court who thought this was a good thing. Uh, James, as he came down from Edinburgh to London, was sort of giving out knighthoods right and left, building up a constituency among minor nobility. But there still was a lot of anti-Scott feeling. Unification was a huge issue, both politically and in terms of national identity. For Shakespeare and his contemporaries, merging Scotland and England would change what it meant to be an Englishman. In King Lear, Shakespeare turns all of these questions on their head. He gives us the story of a nation and a family facing disunification. It's the story of a king who foolishly splits his kingdom, causing the whole world to come apart at the seams. That story takes place in ancient Britain, roughly 8th century BCE, before any kind of reliable history. So perhaps we should begin like this. Once upon a time, there was a king named Lear, and he had three daughters. His youngest, Cordelia, was kind and pure of heart, and her two older sisters were not. Lear is getting on in years, and he wants to retire as king, so he decides to divide his kingdom in three, giving pieces to each daughter. Lear will then step down from the throne and spend a third of the year with each child, bringing with him a retinue of 100 knights. There's only one thing Lear's daughters have to do to get a third of the kingdom. Tell me, my daughters, since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state, which of you, shall we say, doth love us most? The two older sisters declare their undying devotion to Lear. They love him more than words can express, more than daughters ever loved fathers, more than life itself. They each get their third. But when it's Cordelia's turn, she gives her father a very different answer. Nothing, my lord. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond. No more nor less. Cordelia loves Lear according to her duty, and part of her duty to him is honesty. She refuses to flatter him, even when he demands it. She even calls her sisters out for their obvious insincerity. Why have my sisters husbands if they say they love you all? Haply, when I shall wed, that lord whose hand must take my plight shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. Sure, I shall never marry like my sisters to love my father all. Lear is enraged by this response. He disowns Cordelia, dividing her land between her sisters. The king of France, already at court to ask for her hand, marries her even though she's penniless, and they leave. When one of Lear's most loyal men protests the treatment of Cordelia, Lear banishes him. The old king's desire to be told of his own greatness is so extreme that he punishes and humiliates anyone who criticizes him. Lear's behavior worries his remaining daughters, particularly since he has that force of a hundred knights. Lear goes to stay with his eldest daughter, Goneril. But it turns out it's not always convenient to have your elderly father and his personal army staying at your house. Goneril demands that Lear dismiss half his knights. Outraged, Lear curses her, and storms off, 
He next goes to his middle child, Regan, expecting a warmer welcome. But once again, Lear doesn't get the treatment he thinks he deserves. Goneril arrives, and the two prevail on Lear to let go of his private army. Lear explodes with a rage that soon becomes madness, and, unable to control himself, he runs out with his fool into a raging storm. Goneril and Regan forbid anyone from going after Lear or providing him help. Caught in the storm, Lear rants and raves against the elements, commanding them to destroy the world. Blow, winds, and crack your cheeks! Rage, blow! You cataracts and huracanos, spout till you have drenched our steeples, drowned the cocks! You sulfurous and thought-executing fires, vaunt couriers to oak-cleaving thunderbolts, singe my white head! And thou, all shaking thunder, smite flat the thick rotundity of the world. Crack nature's molds and Germans spill at once that make ingrateful man. Lear eventually finds shelter in the hovel of a homeless man. Regan and Goneril plot against him. Cordelia returns to England at the head of the French army to save him, and Lear's friend Gloucester tries to help him. For that, Gloucester gets tortured by Regan and her husband. They pluck out his eyes and step on them in front of the audience. It's the first of many shocking acts of violence that will come to consume the play. A servant tries to stop the torture, and he and Regan's husband kill each other. Meanwhile, Lear is reunited with Cordelia, and she forgives him. But the sweetness of this moment doesn't last. The horrors of the play stack up in rapid succession. The French army is defeated. Cordelia and Lear are taken prisoner. Regan and Goneril turn against one another. Goneril kills Regan and then herself. And an assassin comes to Cordelia's prison cell and hangs her. Goneril's husband, horrified by everything that has happened, sets Lear free. Lear finds Cordelia's body. He thinks he sees her breathing and calls for a mirror to check for air. But his hopes are dashed. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life and thou no breath at all? Thou'lt come no more. Never. Never. Never, never, never. Pray you, undo this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look on her. Look, her lips. Look there. Look there. Lear collapses and dies. With Lear dead and his daughters dead, it's unclear who should rule England or even what England is now that it has been torn apart. The only hope offered in the play's final lines is that perhaps our lives might be less eventful. Or at least, shorter. The weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest hath borne most. We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. If you were in the original audience watching this play, this ending would have been even more shocking and horrifying than it is to us today. That's because Shakespeare's King Lear is based on a very well-known legend about an ancient English king. And in that legend, which most people seeing this play would have known, Cordelia lives. 
She defeats Goneril and Regan, and Lear is restored to the throne where he and his loyal daughter rule together. But in Shakespeare's hands, she dies. Why? Despite the great sorrow of the end of that play, everyone in the audience would be standing around thinking, well, bright side, Cordelia is going to make it. And then he, he touches her lips. He says that he can see breath there. Everyone in the audience can also see breath there because she is a performer. What it seems like to me is just a really brilliant theatrical trick to play on your audience, to take what they know to be true, what they've been holding as a kind of a comfort for themselves, and then to sort of stab you in the heart like that. This fairy tale of a foolish, fond old man who screws up his own love test becomes an apocalyptic nightmare. Shakespeare eliminates all possibility of redemption, giving us his bleakest, most upsetting play. In the world of Lear, madness is never far off, and it infects the characters and the world around them, particularly the aging king at the play's center. But what is King Lear's madness? What causes him to lose his mind? And might Shakespeare be using Lear's madness to explore the nature of power? Act Two. Oh, that way madness lies. The first time a character wonders out loud if Lear has lost it is in the play's very first scene. The Earl of Kent, one of Lear's most loyal subjects, accuses him of madness when he casts Cordelia out. Be Kent unmannerly when Lear is mad, he says. To plainness, honors bound when majesty stoops to folly. In other words, when the head of state is insane, a loyal subject speaks truth to power. And the power that Kent is speaking truth to is absolute. If Julius Caesar takes place at a time of decaying institutions, and Richard II shows institutions growing to check a bad ruler... King Lear takes place at a time that has no institutions other than the monarchy. Lear is in charge. He has the powers of a god. Whatever he wants, he gets. Here's David Caston. Even the institutions within the early history plays, they're, they're limited, they're inadequate. Monarchical power is still supreme, but there are voices that can counter that voice of the king. Lear, there really is none. Uh, and you're at the mercy of some probable fantasy of a, a king who's compassionate and caring. And of course, that's not Lear, or certainly not Lear for a long time in this play. Lear is rash, prone to rages, and petulant. Even after he gives up the duties of having power, what he calls the cares of state, he still expects to be obeyed and revered, particularly by his children. But he isn't. Lear mistakenly believes that all of that love and deference and power came from him. But it came from being king. As one character points out to him very early on in the play, now that he isn't king, he's nothing. He's powerless. And that powerlessness causes him to go mad. It starts when his daughters ask him why he needs all those knights following him around. Oh, reason not the need. Our basest beggars are in the poorest thing superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life's as cheap as beasts. Soon, he vows revenge against his daughters. He begins losing track of what he's saying, yet he still desperately clings to power. 
I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall... I will do such things. What they are, yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. You think I'll weep? No, I'll not weep. I have full cause of weeping, but this heart shall break into a hundred thousand flaws, or ere I'll weep. Oh, fool, I shall go mad. Rather than accept that his daughters have won, that he has no power and he should give up his knights, Lear runs out into the storm and into madness. This is what supreme power has done to King Lear. His entitlement has enfeebled him. But once he loses all of that power for good, once he's out in that storm, he regains his sanity, and he starts to become self-aware. And here's what he describes as the source of his problems. They flattered me like a dog, and told me I had white hairs in my beard ere the black ones were there. To say I and no to everything that I said? I and no too was no good divinity. As king, Lear was told that he was right, even when he was wrong. His every desire was instantly gratified. They told him he was everything, that the universe revolved around him, and he believed them. He only found out they were lying to him when he went out in the storm and suffered. When the rain came to wet me once, and the wind to make me chatter, when the thunder would not peace at my bidding. There I found them, there I smelt them out. Go to, they are not men of their words. They told me I was everything. Tis a lie. I am not ague-proof. And in that storm, as he approaches the hovel where he will take shelter, a remarkable thing happens. For the first time in the entire play, Lear expresses concern for another character, offering the fool the chance to get out of the storm before him. Then, alone on stage, he starts to consider that other people might be out in the rain too. Poor naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides your looped and windowed raggedness defend you from seasons such as these. Lear experiences empathy for the first time. As Helen Shaw puts it, He invites in the idea of, well, what do you do if you are not protected by wealth and the world is falling apart? You live in a hovel. You wear nothing but rags. You go mad from the, from the starvation and the sorrow. Lear who just a short time ago was the most powerful man in his country, has been moved to consider the plight of the poor. And it gets even more radical from there. Take physic, Pomp. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayst shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. That word, superflux, it means overabundance. Lear is addressing an audience that at some performances included the king, and he's advocating for the redistribution of wealth. That's the solution to the disease affecting Lear and his country. If power and wealth lead to madness, 
we must make our leaders less powerful and less wealthy. Here's David Kasten. It's a voice of compassion, a voice of social unity, a voice of political concern and responsibility that exists almost nowhere else in early modern literature. Thinking about kingship in a way that almost no early modern or medieval king ever thought about. And they think that it's amazing, right? No, no one else says that. But that radicalism has a limit. Here's the problem, it seems to me. It's the uniqueness of that experience that gives him the insight, but there's no politics in that particularly. One can't imagine many rulers being exposed to that experience. So if it depends on a vision that only comes from the rain wetting you and the wind to make you chatter, uh, we don't have a real politics here at all. And, of course, Lear's revelation, his moment of knowledge of the self and society, has come too late to do anyone any good. That's why Lear is a tragedy. Lear can only understand suffering because he has suffered, and he can only see people suffering through the lens of his own experience. In one scene, he sees a mad naked wretch exposed to the elements, and he asks the man if his daughters betrayed him. Nothing could have subdued nature to such aloneness but his unkind daughters. Even in his saner moments, Lear never loses his fixation on his daughter's betrayal. His madness isn't just about having power and having to give it up. It's also about who he has to give the power to. His daughters. He has to give power up to women. And when they get it, they turn into monsters. So how did Shakespeare's society think about women and power? And what does King Lear have to say about it? Act 3. Women's Weapons Goneril, Regan, and Cordelia are all women, living in a kind of mythical Britain. But Shakespeare's audience would have seen them through the lens of womanhood in the early 17th century. So to see how King Lear can help us understand power, and giving up power, we have to look at the gender dynamics in the play and in Shakespeare's society. If you were a woman in early 17th century England, you were legally a possession of your father until you were married. After you wed, you belonged to your husband. The only women who had any kind of independence were widows who could inherit their husband's property. Even widows aren't really supposed to be in charge of anything. But England had just seen a very significant exception to these rules, Queen Elizabeth. I spoke to Claire McManus about this. She's a professor at the University of Roehampton who focuses on women and performance during the Elizabethan era. So she's imagined as this exceptional, unique woman who, who it's safe to allow to be in charge. Um, she's not setting a precedence in a way. Uh, and one of the ways that um, she manages to be a woman in a very thoroughgoing patriarchal world is by embracing this idea of virginity. She has a very masculine court in which um, courtiers competed for her favor. So being incredibly flattering, being incredibly worshiping, but with no real hope of um, you know, anything actually coming of it. With Elizabeth gone and James firmly in power, many people felt the nation was returning to the way things ought to be 
a feeling that Shakespeare turns on its head, just like he did with the unification. So I think this is also very much a post-Elizabeth play. It's what what you do if you put a woman in charge and the pitfalls. And of course, Goneril Regan show us the pitfalls, but so does Cordelia. In King Lear, all three daughters have more power than they're supposed to, and nothing good comes of it. Goneril poisons Regan and kills herself. Regan perpetrates the most horrific act of onstage violence in all of Shakespeare. And Cordelia leads an army to avenge her father. But she leads it to defeat. So is King Lear simply a misogynist play, one that argues that women shouldn't have any power? I think that theatre productions have to be really careful with this play because it's very, very easy to fall back into some of the patterns that are there in Shakespeare. But I'm not going to blame a man who died in 1616 for not being a feminist. But I will (laughs) ask directors now to be feminists. So how do you handle Goneril and Regan's evil? That's one of the big questions you face if you direct this play. I have seen some terrible, terrible ideas about this in my time. One answer always seems to be, and this I find so shaming, is that the costume designer just puts a lot of leather on Regan and Goneril. There's been some really embarrassing sort of jacket solutions that they've gone with. The most recent one that we saw, the Anthony Schur, had a very strong Goneril who was extremely reasonable, but you actually saw her going mad because she was so much like her father uh, that the two of them would snap at servants in almost identical ways. The temptation to dress Regan and Goneril in leather is so strong because as Lear's daughters gain power, they become more masculine. Goneril and Regan become more forceful and direct, and Cordelia literally leads an invading army as it attacks Britain. And Lear? Well, as he loses power, he becomes feminized. Remember when I said that Lear is told that without the crown he's nothing? Well, the word nothing is a major motif in this play. It's said 34 times in various contexts, including Lear's famous answer to Cordelia that nothing will come of nothing. Nothing had many meanings in Shakespeare's day. One of those meanings, which he used frequently throughout his career, was slang for female genitalia. Lear's emotional outbursts would have read as feminine as well. Hysterica passio is this idea of uh, hysteria, which in the Renaissance was thought to come from the roving womb that, that sort of roamed all over women's bodies and caused you know, no end of emotional difficulty and trouble. Lear references this roaming womb in the play. He says, how this mother swells up toward my heart, down, thou climbing sorrow. And the lines are kind of kind of crazy, kind of absurd in one way, but they really do speak of this dread and fear of the other. And the other is, is just femininity. As Lear loses power, he experiences a taste of what it's like to be a woman in his society. And in response, he becomes fixated on femininity. He isn't just angry at his daughters for betraying him. He's obsessed with women in general. You might not be surprised to find out that he's not a fan of them. When Goneril first demands he dismiss half his knights, Lear curses her womb with sterility. A few lines later, he says outright that his rage is provoked by her threats to his masculinity. I am ashamed that thou hast power to shake my manhood thus, 
that these hot tears which break from me perforce should make thee worth them. Later still, he calls tears women's weapons, water drops. And his misogyny escalates throughout the play, even after he learns to care about the poor. Late in the play, in one of Shakespeare's most graphic passages, Lear says that all women are centaurs. Their upper halves look human, but... Beneath is all the fiends. There's hell, there's darkness, there's the sulfurous pit, burning, scalding, stench, consumption. Lear is the ultimate patriarch. He begins the play as powerful as a straight white man could possibly be. Yet he experiences even small losses of power in ways that feel very familiar today. Giving up any amount of authority feels to him like a great loss, and he speaks of having to renegotiate boundaries with women as if he is the victim of oppression rather than them. And, as we've seen, the play also finds something perverse and worrisome about women holding power. Sometimes, as Lear rants about women, it's unclear whether we're seeing his misogyny or the play's. But the play also shows Lear's hostility towards women as a component of his madness and invites the audience to find fault with it. That invitation to publicly come together and express an opinion about a king, it might not seem strange to us today, but in Shakespeare's time, the theater was one of the few places that it could happen. It is a kind of proto-public sphere where people come together as a public uh, and exert judgments. You know, you you judge kings. You make judgments about King Lear and Richard II that you never could make in any other context. Right? You couldn't write an op-ed in the newspaper and you, you know, couldn't start a political movement. You think of all those Shakespearean plays about kings and kings who get killed. The definition of treason that set judicially, by law from 1381, is to imagine or compass the death of a king. But what do all those plays do but imagine the death of a king and invite a populace to participate in that imagining? Power could be redistributed, but only in the imagination. When power is redistributed in Lear, the people it's given to behave more and more monstrously as they get more powerful. At the beginning of the play, Regan and Goneril actually seem quite reasonable. If your elderly, erratic father insisted on bringing his private army with him when he came to live with you, well, you might try to find an underhanded way to get rid of them too. But as the play goes on, they begin enjoying their power too much and acting masculine. They order people around, they commit acts of violence, they go to war. Often this is interpreted as a sign that they were wicked all along. But where would Regan and Goneril have learned to behave this way with power? Their only model is their father. Lear finds a way out of this trap when he finally experiences total powerlessness. That solution, redistributing wealth and power, is the fundamental project of a democracy. Shaking the superflux to the needy benefits them, but it also, as Lear says, shows the heavens more just. It's how we use power to bring moral order to the universe. Because the concentration of power and wealth aren't just destructive to the wretches of the world, they're destructive to all of us, even the most powerful among us. 
Ultimately, King Lear shows us what happens when people become accustomed to power and privilege. It shows us the ways they insist on maintaining their authority even when it no longer has any basis. How they act against their own self-interest because otherwise they'd have to obey the very people they used to rule. And how they respond to the loss of power with rage, preferring to destroy everything around them rather than allow anyone else to have it. Before we get to our special thanks, I'd just like to remind you that I'll be appearing as part of Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival's Coronation Day Festival, talking about all things Richard II. It's on Monday, July 16th, and you can find out more at hvshakespeare.org. Also, if you're a Slate Plus member, there's a bonus episode ready for you right now, featuring Hi-Fi Nation's Barry Lamb and Slate's own Gabriel Roth talking with me about King Lear. If you'd like to hear those bonus episodes, sign up for Slate Plus today at slate.com slash Shakespeare. I'd like to thank my guests for this week's episode, David Kasten, Claire McManus, and Helen Shaw. You heard the voices of Jordy Broadwater as Lear, Emily gardner Shoe Hall as Cordelia, and Daryl Lathan as Albany and Kent. Additional thanks to James Shapiro. Our podcast is produced by Chow Tu. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth, a knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats. If you'd like to read ahead, our next play is Measure for Measure, and our next episode drops on August 14th. Thank you so much for listening.